Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 266, Questions 12. Yes, more questions today. We're into broader territory now, still focused on the Fourth Crusade, but expanding our vision into the past to search for answers to wider issues. Listener TD asks which was more brutal, the Crusader sack of Constantinople or the Gothic sack of Rome in 410 AD? I hadn't thought about Alaric's sack of Rome until listener TD brought it up, but it's actually a brilliant point of comparison. Let me briefly remind you of the narrative surrounding 410, and I think you'll see some distant echoes of 1204. Back in 408 AD, Alaric and his Goths were locked in protracted negotiations with the Emperor Honorius at Ravenna. The Germans wanted to be settled within the empire and given an official role in the military hierarchy. Honorius refused to cooperate, so the Goths used the Eternal City as leverage against him. They besieged the city and forced the people of Rome to cough up huge sums of money and luxury goods to get them to leave. But they returned the next year and put the city under siege again this time agreeing to retreat only when the Senate would raise a new emperor, who would appoint Alaric as his chief general. When this failed to force Honorius to the negotiating table, Alaric abandoned diplomacy, besieged Rome for a third time, and sacked the city. I think there are a number of interesting parallels to the Fourth Crusade, in both cases, the invading army face little resistance and aren't really interested in attacking the city, but both need things from the metropolis which aren't forthcoming. Both incidents involve multiple sieges and the attempt to force a new emperor on the population to get matters expedited. The sack that followed was similarly restrained. The Goths were Christians and had a healthy respect for Rome's venerable status. The churches of St. Peter's and St. Paul's were nominated as places of sanctuary, and those who hid inside were left alone. According to some accounts, they even escorted nuns to safety before ransacking their convents. As with Constantinople, we do hear of rape and murder, but in general, the Goths, like the Latins, were after money. They spent three days looting and then left without trying to slaughter or enslave en masse. 
It's a, an interesting point of comparison politically as well as militarily. In one sense, the sack of Rome made little difference to the empire at the time, whereas the sack of Constantinople was a devastating blow. But then again, the Western Roman Empire disappeared just 60 years after the sack, whereas the Byzantines will go on and on. In both cases, it's a study of the collapse of a political system, and I imagine there are even more interesting parallels that could be drawn. Listener FP, thinking of Alexius Angelos, asks, how often has relying on foreign patrons worked as a strategy for becoming Roman emperor? Recently, it seems like all the pretenders hanging out with the Normans or the Turks have got nowhere. Glancing at a list of emperors, I can only see one who did exactly what Alexius Angelos did, and that's Justinian II, as in the one with the slit nose. As you may recall, Justinian was the last of Heraclius's dynasty and was overthrown and exiled to Cherson. From there, he escaped to the Bulgars, who backed him to retake Constantinople. They didn't actually break into the city. Justinian climbed through an aqueduct pipe. But it was their backing that got him to the gates. Basil II famously called on the Rus to send him troops in his civil war with Bardas Phocas, and then formed the Varangian Guard afterwards. But that's not quite the same. And recently, Isaac Angelos relied heavily on Boniface of Montferrat's brother Conrad to survive his civil war with Alexius Vranas. But again, that's not quite what you're asking. It's clearly not a strategy that often succeeded, though I think it's worth saying that some of the pretenders who rose up in Anatolia may never have imagined they'd actually become emperor. It was sort of a get-rich-quick scheme. Claim that you are Manuel's son, gather a following, then ask the Turks to give you money and soldiers. Then you go rampaging through the provinces to get more money and more followers. Maybe they hoped that they could sort of um, keep uh, rolling on and be swept into power, but I suspect the real goal was just to find a corner of the world where they could be king and enjoy the fun while it lasted. As for the pretenders the um, that the Normans were backing, I think they were more um, just pawns, you know, being used to justify an invasion. Had the Normans succeeded and captured Constantinople, these ciphers would not have lasted long. Listener MC is thinking about the Byzantine mechanism for succession. I'm struck by how the succession principle the empire tried to follow evolved over the centuries, but never really got to the point where it was ironclad. There were just too many possible points of failure. Betrayal by family members, betrayal by generals, failure to produce an heir, for the system to be reliable. By contrast, the Republic was more robust until it ended entirely. What do you think? This is a perennial question when the Byzantines collapse into civil war. Would a different system of succession have given them more stability? We talked about this a bit in episode 200, the tribute to Professor Mark Witto. He made the point that the rewards at the top of the imperial system were so great that it encouraged clans to keep agitating to get one of their own on the throne. 
so that even if an individual didn't want to rebel, he might have a huge family network relying on him to pull the trigger and declare himself emperor. Putting the Republic aside for one moment, let's return to that same article by Professor Witto. In it, he compares the position of the Byzantine emperor to that of comparable rulers of the same period. The kings of England and France, the German emperor, the Egyptian caliph, and the emperors of Song, China. By analysing the systems which kept those rulers in power, he came up with some interesting insights into the relatively weaker position of the Vasilefs. The period he chose to look at was from 963 AD to 1204, so from the reign of Nicephorus Phocas to the Fourth Crusade. 22 adult emperors reigned during that period, 12 of whom were forcibly removed from office. This compares unfavourably to contemporary states. During that same time, there were only 17 German emperors, five of whom had to be removed, 16 Egyptian caliphs, only three of whom were forced out, while the Chinese had just 12 emperors and the French had only nine kings across that 241-year period, all of whom died of natural causes. So statistically, it was far harder to stay on top in Byzantium. Why? Again, Professor Witto looks to the empire's neighbours for clues. Egypt is an interesting example. There, the Fatimid Caliph was the supreme and infallible religious leader, something which the Vasilefs could never claim because of the separation of church and state. This gave the Caliph a sort of untouchable status and allowed him to rule through his viziers. By appointing a chief minister who could visibly deal with the grubby business of politics, the Caliph could remain above the fray and if the political winds turned against the regime, it was the vizier who could be dragged through the streets in shame while the caliph remained safe in the palace. Similarly, in China, the emperor spent a lot of his time in complex rituals to ensure the proper relations with heaven were maintained. Ruling through grand counsellors who could drive policy and be left open to criticism from the public. This again shielded the emperor from things which the Byzantine emperors had to deal with. Um, the Byzantine emperors lacked this kind of sacral protection, and when their ministers became unpopular, it often reflected badly on them. Meanwhile, the German emperors were not supreme rulers in the same way as the Byzantine emperor. They didn't have to micromanage each region of their realm. Powerful lords ran their own backyards, but ultimately owed allegiance to the emperor. This allowed men like Frederick Barbarossa to stand above the accusations of greed and corruption that are the bread and butter of politics. Instead, he could act as an arbitrator, um, or even you know, disappear on crusade without anyone trying to unseat him in his absence. The English and French kings could again rely on the sacrality of their position to protect themselves. In Western thinking, the moment that someone became king they were touched by God. Consecration made their person sacred. As Professor Witto points out, despite claiming to be the Lord's vice-regent, the person of an emperor was quickly discarded when they fell from power, while English and French kings were sometimes captured in battle, um, but when they were, no one gouged their eyes out for fear of touching 
the anointed ruler. Physically, the emperors were more vulnerable than their contemporaries. Perhaps because of the republican origins of the Roman state, no Tower of London existed at Constantinople, no stronghold like the huge citadel at Cairo. When Nicephorus Phocas built extra walls around the palace, he was called a tyrant, and was then, ironically, murdered in his bed anyway. And though the Varangian guard were always loyal to the emperor, they were not exactly loyal to the individual, but more to the office. When they discovered that Phocas was dead, they offered to begin protecting his murderer. There was no benefit in seeking vengeance. They needed to secure their next paycheck. Whereas over in Cairo, Turkic or Sudanese slave soldiers were brought in. Raised from rags to riches by a particular caliph, they owed their loyalty to him personally, and it was understood that if their master fell, they would soon follow. While over in the West, Latin kings could rely on men who'd grown up in their household and who'd sworn to defend their friend with their life, oaths which were taken far more seriously than the acclamations which each Byzantine emperor received on their elevation. Hereditary succession was also taken more seriously in most of these other states, whereas in Byzantium this principle was much weaker. Emperors held office because a coalition of interests in the bureaucracy, army, and church all agreed that they should. Professor Witto argues that the survival of Basil II and his brother during the reigns of Phocas and Zimisces actually makes this point clear rather than detracting from it. Phocas and Zimisces did not keep the boys alive because of the principle of hereditary succession. In fact, if that principle really mattered, they would have killed them immediately to put an end to any quarrels about their right to rule. Instead, the boys' wider family was so entrenched in the bureaucracy that it was far better for coalition building to keep them safe. And as Professor Cordellis argued in our last episode, Basil was so sick of his suffocating upbringing that he decided to let the dynasty die out, without fear that it would do much harm to the empire. Taken together, Professor Witto says these factors suggest that Byzantine emperors had a competitive disadvantage with their rival monarchs. So listener MC clearly has a point about the weaknesses in the Byzantine method of succession. But we have to balance this with the advantages that this system offered. There were very few bad Byzantine emperors. The vulnerability of the imperial position promoted meritocracy. There were also very few ideological struggles within Byzantine society. By forcing everyone to agree on who the emperor should be, the imperial regime was often widely supported. The same goes for provincial separatism, at least until 1204. Governors of far-off principalities were always drawn back to the centre, where the palace at Constantinople offered rich rewards and opportunities. Compare this to the kings of France, who rarely controlled most of their realm during this period, or mighty Frederick Barbarossa, who was continually thwarted by stubborn Italian city-states. What about the Fatimid caliphs of Cairo? They may well have been safe behind their walls, but eventually their viziers simply took power away from them and turned them into puppets. By contrast, Roman emperors were almost always powerful figures whose orders were obeyed 
across their territory? I don't think there's a a correct answer here. Anyone who studied English history knows that it's replete with civil wars despite the hereditary principle. So had the Byzantines tinkered with their succession mechanisms, there's no guarantee that anything would have changed. The Romans just tended to have these periods of rapid turnover at the top as a new coalition of interests emerged. These periods could be very destructive, but they were often over within a few years. This system was definitely an inheritance from the Roman Republic. The emperor was ultimately just another office of the state, like the consuls of old. It never evolved definitively into a divinely sanctioned monarchy. I haven't studied the Republican period, and I'm not even sure how you would begin to compare the stability of the Republic with the stability of the Byzantine Empire. Both lasted for centuries and centuries, both collapsed eventually, but under very different circumstances. Listener B asks why and how Western Europe became so powerful in such a relatively short period of time. I know population growth is a big part of it, but why did their population grow so much more than Byzantium's? And were there cultural or military factors that contributed to their ability to pose a threat to Byzantium and the Arabs in a way that they hadn't before? Obviously, whole books could be written to adequately answer this question, but here's my bite-sized version. Population growth is indeed the key. Estimates suggest that between the year 1000 and 1340, the population of Europe grew from 38 to 73 million, with northern Europe showing the fastest rates of growth. This surge in population is linked to the so-called medieval warm period, centuries of better weather which aided the growth of crops and the expansion of cultivated soil. There were various technological innovations which went hand-in-hand with this, including wind and water mills and better use of horses in farming. The key innovation, according to many, though, was the widespread adoption of the heavy plough. The ploughs in wide use in the Mediterranean world could not properly till the clay soils of northern Europe, but this changed with the introduction of a heavier plough. This is why the population of Western Europe was able to expand, because the new methods opened up land that had previously been unusable. Forests disappeared to be replaced by farms, feeding a rapidly expanding populace. Whereas farming patterns in the Mediterranean world did not change dramatically from the Roman to the Byzantine period. The heavy plough wasn't needed there. The good farming land had been identified long ago and exploited. The population around the Mediterranean did grow, but only gradually. Cultural differences then come into play. Byzantium was a conservative place. Despite the opportunities it could have pursued, the Roman elites never showed much interest in expansive commerce, and the government didn't encourage the build-up of private power. Whereas Western Europe developed a mercantile ethos, The Italian city-states, as we've seen, filled the gap the Byzantines left in the market and grew rich as the middlemen of the Mediterranean. The centralization of power in Byzantium also led to relatively peaceful and predictable provinces, 
whereas the weaker authority of Latin rulers created an independent-minded culture, one where individual lords looked to increase the productivity as well as the size of their lands. The constant competition between nobles from neighbouring regions spurred a level of violence, but also of productivity, which was often absent in Byzantium. Eventually, this would lead to the growth of cities, which generated more productivity, new industries, new ideas, whereas the giant size and excellent location of Constantinople encouraged the Byzantines to let the world come to them, rather than try to innovate or found new centres. Finally, of course, the culture of knights was an innovation which, again, the Byzantines would not have encouraged. They wanted a centralised field army that was obedient, rather than having every region sprouting champions who would challenge central authority. Coniates and others recognised that the Latins were fine warriors, but also that it was crusading which gave them the unity they had previously lacked. And it was this that enabled them to tackle the Byzantines and the Arabs head-on. Remember that even up to the Normans sacking Thessaloniki, the Romans were able to defeat individual Latin armies repeatedly. But a massed one like the Crusades brought was different. You know, by attracting volunteers from across Western Europe, um, the crusading movement generated giant field armies, far larger than contemporary states usually put together. And by 1204, Byzantium was drawing from a much, much smaller area. It couldn't easily compete with coalitions built from the entire sweep of the West. The Fourth Crusade was a sort of French army with an Italian captain sailing on a Venetian fleet. That was a formidable threat to Constantinople, but one which would never have existed without the ideology of crusading. Listener P.L. is trying to pinpoint the reasons for Roman decline. Could the collapse of the empire be partially explained by a long and continuous decline in the ability to attract and incorporate peoples into the Roman identity? During the classical period, Peoples like the Gauls or even the Britons Romanized within three or so generations. But in the Byzantine period, people like the Bulgarians and Venetians had close ties with the empire for centuries, but were never incorporated. Yes, I definitely think this is part of the story of Roman decline. The ability of the Republic and then the early empire to encourage people into the Roman order was immensely impressive. It's a process I'd very much like to study at some point. I think Christianity did introduce a certain problem into Roman society. The need for orthodoxy created conflicts that were not easily resolved. That ability of earlier generations to incorporate or even combine gods to smooth the transition of new peoples into the Roman order was replaced by a far less flexible religious order. Things really changed in the 7th century, though. After taking an utter battering at the hands of the Arabs, Roman identity began to change. Instead of seeing themselves as the universal order that others must adapt to, the Byzantines began to identify themselves with the Israelites, a chosen people who must weather endless storms but would ultimately survive. This encouraged a snobbish tendency in the Roman elite, 
the idea that they were civilization and everything else was barbarity became normalized. Those who didn't speak Greek or profess orthodoxy had to be tolerated rather than embraced. Of course, it's not uh, simply a matter of culture. The earlier Romans were far more powerful than the later Byzantines, and that power seduced people to join them, whereas Byzantine vulnerability encouraged people like the Bulgars to resist. We should remember, though, that the Byzantines were far more typical of states across world history than the earlier Romans were. Listener P.L. also asks whether a decline in technical acumen could have contributed to the fall of the empire as well. This I'm less sure about, though it's true that engineering and architecture seem to have declined as Byzantium lost territory. I'm not sure their maintenance would have made much difference to the direction of travel. I think that's one that we'll have to wait for the big science and technology episode I will eventually produce. Though listener PL goes on to ask whether the decline can be put down to divestment, as in a lack of investment in infrastructure. I think that might be a chicken and egg situation. Did the Byzantines invest less in infrastructure leading to collapse, or did the collapse lead to less investment in infrastructure? The Roman world certainly became much less urbanized after the 7th century, but that was a trend which began back in the crisis of the 3rd century, and perhaps even earlier. The era when the wealthy would invest in their local town was slowly fading away from the early days of the Roman Empire. The centralized imperial system encouraged men to seek out the empire's power centers rather than becoming local bigwigs. Slowly, the world became a more dangerous place for pretty cities with no defenses. Byzantium's resurgence in the 10th and 11th centuries did not lead to massive urban expansion, so I don't know how key investment in infrastructure was to the health of the empire in the medieval period. As we just talked about, the growth of cities in Western Europe did fuel the economy there. But as we also just talked about, Byzantine culture was different to that of the West. It's not clear to me that the Romans would have become rich through trade and innovation the way Western Europe did, because the incentives to innovate just weren't there. Western ideas probably would have penetrated through eventually, but your question is about decline, and I don't think that a different culture in Byzantium, let's say under Basil II, would have made any difference when the Turks came calling. You know, better roads, bridges, aqueducts, that wouldn't have made any difference to the nomads breaking through and capturing the plateau. I mean, this is the frustrating thing, you know, about the story of decline and fall often is if the Turks hadn't broken through the mountains, the Byzantines probably would have been fine. But they did, and the Byzantines were not fine. And, you know, obviously that's in combination with the Normans and the Pechenegs breaking through and so on, but it's all quite contingent. You know, I think we want to look at, at things um, and see all these trends and, and causes and um, kind of track changes over a long period and point to where things went wrong but i i think the byzantines could deal with almost any enemy that they faced but steppe archers were a different story and they 
Their political organization was so different that it was just hard to negotiate with them and hard to fight them. And eventually the empire, you know, fell into the fourth crusade and they just wouldn't have the resources anymore to recover. So, you know, it's interesting to ponder sort of the development of Roman society, but I don't really think that sort of better weapons, better technology, better infrastructure would have made much of a difference um, in this case. That's it for today. We still have lots more questions to get through, including a particular focus on provincial separatism and the whole question of why state structures were struggling just before 1204, what had happened to the army, and all of that. And then eventually we will get to the episode I keep talking about on the suffering and loss of, uh, you know, seeing a city sacked. Um, But when that's completed, that should be the end of the century episodes complete. Um, I will... Uh, do the Zoom call with patrons uh, when all the questions have been answered so that you can respond to my answers. And uh, I will give you plenty of warning when that's coming. Uh, So don't worry if you're worried about missing it. Okay, thanks for listening.